welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior-serving professionals and providers, with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Hello, amazing listeners. Welcome back to Mastering Medicare with Alex and Amy. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. So today we are going to be talking about something that always comes up if I'm consulting for somebody. Alex gets it if he's consulting. This is a topic of great interest to pretty much everybody who is a doctor, nurse practitioner, a PA. It's how do we get paid through the Medicare system? Isn't that interesting, Alex? Yeah. (laughs) How the money flows is everything. How the money flows is everything. So we're going to be talking today about how we get paid through what are called CPT codes and HICPICS codes. This is really interesting. So HICPICS codes and CPT codes are basically a list of codes that have been attributed to every possible thing that can be done in medicine. It means equipment. It means evaluation and management in the office setting. It means doing surgeries. It means all of those things have a code attached to them. And then when you submit that code to Medicare, Medicare has something called like a Medicare approved rate or whatever it is exactly. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that is the way that we get paid. And Medicare basically divides all of these things into procedural codes and management codes and equipment codes. And then what happens is if you're a provider with Medicare, you send it to Medicare and then within 14 days they pay you. So we're just going to go through this. And this is going to be an informative, educational podcast today because we've just had so many questions about this. And then moving forward, we're going to have some guests come on that have created their own codes, that have worked with the American Medical Association to, you know, give values to those codes. And I think it's just going to really, I think it's going to hit a sweet spot for a lot of people because people who are in the startup world are really trying to figure out how to get money through the Medicare system because they have great ideas and they just don't understand quite how to get paid if they're going to be looking at working with original Medicare or even Medicare Advantage. Yeah. And before we dive deep into that, let's mention back to the audience that we did launch our Aging Here newsletter, which you can visit at www.aginghere.com. It's our twice weekly newsletter on everything to do with the aging in place market, especially the business and operations of aging in place. And we are we want this to be a community. If you have articles or ideas or stories that you want shared in the newsletter, you can reach out to us at info at aginghere.com. And also, if you're interested in being interviewed for Mastering Medicare and you think you have an interesting story or a deep dive topic, reach, reach out to us at info at masteringmedicare.net. So Amy, back to the CPT topic, I see a lot of folks get confused between CPT codes versus ICD-10 codes. Can you Uh, give the the quick one? Yeah. So let me start off by telling you what CPT stands for. It stands for Common Procedural Terminology. And I think it's important to kind of go back to where these all came from. If we don't think about the history of them, then they kind of don't make sense even vis-a-vis HICPICS or ICD-10 because they're all distinctly different. So the common procedural terminology codes came about many, many years ago. It turns out that there's only a limited number of things that we do in medicine, right? Like we 
examine people, we do surgery on people, but each one of them has a little bit of a micro difference to it. And it became interesting for some really smart people to start saying, all right, how do we actually delineate each of these activities? How do we describe the work that is done by medical professionals? And in doing so, they came up with this astronomically complex way of describing all of them. I mean, in fact, in emergency medicine, Alex, there is a specific code for if you fix a one centimeter laceration, a three centimeter laceration, a five centimeter laceration. And each of these CPT codes has become the way that we communicate back and forth about what we do. What is the work that we do as medical professionals? Right. And this is this is unbelievably interesting that somebody sort of took the time to kind of describe all of these. And then they got divided up into whether or not it's a procedural, like an actual procedure, like a surgery, or if it's an evaluation and management code. So back in the 1960s, early 70s, this sort of began to happen where people tried to articulate using a numerical representation for what the stuff was that we did. At that point in time, none of it was linked to payment. It was just a way of describing how many different types of things that we did. And so a lot of these have five-digit codes. The CPT codes specifically start with like 99 this and 99 that. And there's a, there's a lot of codes out there. Right. Over time, the AMA, which manages these codes, began working with the federal government and saying, we not only have this list of codes, but we need to be able to describe how we might get paid for those codes. And then the whole idea of RVUs came into play. Mm -hmm. And RVUs are relative value units. And this is actually truly how doctors get paid. So that if you, there's a CPT that code that you submit to Medicare, there's a value that is given to that thing. And then Medicare pays based on that. So I thought we would just sort of start talking about the CPT codes and then we can move on to RBUs, ICD-10, HICPICs, and all this sort of stuff. We don't want this to be an overwhelming podcast. So we're going to really try to keep it contained right. into this sort of world. So Alex, let's just say you have somebody come into your office and you sit and talk with them for 15 minutes or 30 minutes there is a code for sitting and talking to a patient. Right. And it has a number. And if you do it, then you put it on this Medicare 1500 form, which you can find on the web. It's basically a form. Of course, now it's all done electronically, but it's a form that asks for the patient's name, their Medicare number, what their diagnoses are that might be related to what you've done. And you submit that with the code to Medicare. And then they pay you 14 days later. That, that's just the simplistic way of looking at this. Yeah. But if let's just say that you do a craniotomy on somebody, which is basically brain surgery, there's also a CPT code listed for that. And then with all the little teeny tiny adjustments, like, okay, well, the, you know, I made this type of incision and I, you know, extracted this much of the skull and then I did all these different things. All of these are now described in these CPT codes. I think, you know, you know what, what I find fascinating about this is the simplicity of the model is, I think, something that has led to the massive amount of fraud that there is in fee-for-service Medicare, right? Because you basically, as a provider, you just put on this, you know, either paper document or electronically, I, I did this CPT code for this patient who's a Medicare patient, and you send it, 
and 14 days later, there's money in your bank. And it's like an unlimited pot of money. I mean, well, that speaks very beautifully to original Medicare just as a general rule because Medicare, original Medicare doesn't have a gatekeeper. You know what I'm saying? Like you got a headache, you go to a neurosurgeon, you have, you know, a skin tag on your arm, you're going to go to like a plastic surgeon. So people don't triage themselves well throughout the system. But, you know, in speaking to to that exactly, right? Like it, it's just like, here's my code, here's what I did, and I'm going to document it, you know, based on what the CPT manual tells me I have to document it, right. and then I send it off. I mean, I think a lot of the fraud, though, just to kind of contextualize, is not because maybe the documentation wasn't perfect to support that CPT code. It's just that probably just like either never happened or never needed to happen. Right. That's fraud. Fraud is, the fraud and abuse is, is, First of all, we're not lawyers, but it is it's not necessarily because somebody didn't document right. So the important thing also to understand about CPT codes is that there is a manual from the AMA that allows you to see exactly what Medicare wants to see in the documentation to support the medical necessity of that particular CPT code. You have to prove to Medicare in words. And by the way, they believe us. Whatever we write down in general, they believe that you were medically necessary, it was medically necessary to perform the evaluation management process or to do a surgery, you just put it in to the, the documentation, you send it in, and then you get paid. Well, I think this is one of the weaknesses actually about this system, that when new CPT codes get generated, like when the new RPM codes got published January 1st, 2020, there wasn't a comprehensive documentation of all the requirements for the CPT code. You had to go through all sorts of different sources to try to piece together the, all the different nuances that you needed to answer. And that's been one of my frustrations is that they generate these codes, but then they don't necessarily publish a single curated, centralized set of rules for those codes. Not only that, Oh, oh, I think you are so right. I mean, I it takes me back to when the annual wellness visit code came out. Yeah. And they were like, okay, an annual wellness visit must be comprised of this, 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 and this. Well, what do you mean by that? Like, just show me right. exactly. If you're going to give me rules, don't give me half the rules. Tell right. me exactly what rules. Because there's like that gotcha moment when they're like, well, I mean, that wasn't how we interpret it, interpreted it, you know, here over at CMS. This is how you as an individual provider have interpreted. I mean, the interesting thing, though, Alex, is when the annual wellness visit came out and I can't remember exactly G0 something, 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 because it's a it's it's an interesting code. An entire industry developed around the annual wellness visit code because it was so confusing. So companies were forming that were like, we can help you do your annual wellness visit because the interpretation of it became almost paralytic. For a lot of providers, they're like, well, I don't totally understand how to do it. Thus, I'm never going to bill it. And yep. it, it's actually even more interesting is if you look at all of the utilization of some of the codes that are out there, many of them are never utilized. They're yeah. just not utilized. Yeah. Like there's actually like sometimes they'll throw a code out there that may never have a payment from Medicare just to see if people will utilize it. But it's there's so many codes now that you, you almost have to like live in that world of coding, coding, coding to even say, well, I've been doing this all along. I didn't even know there was a code for that. And now I can get billed for that. And that's where the chronic care management codes yeah. came from. Extended non-face-to-face time codes have come from. But let's go back to CPT for just a second. So 
let's just say we're working in the emergency department, Alex, and we see a patient who comes in with chest pain. We can put down a specific type of code, which is an evaluation and management code. It requires a certain type of documentation to be done. But then the patient has a moment where they, let's just say, for those of you who may know what this is, they go into atrial fibrillation. We have to give them some medications. We can then bill on top of that original CPT code, more CPT codes that say we were dealing with critical care time and all these other types of things so that you can actually layer on when you see a patient, multiple different codes. So in fact, what you might start off by saying, well, this is just a simple code. I'm not really going to get myself, you know, anything else. You have to know what the subcodes are to make your job even profitable. To make right. what you do make money, you have to become a coding expert in your field. Yeah. That's, that was my assessment. What gets messy is there are rules that certain codes, for example, cannot be combined together or they can only be billed certain frequency of times, right? Correct. Or yes. only by certain types of providers. And again, right. this is where my real frustration is. You, as a provider, you have to piece this all together. And then if you don't do it correctly, they can claw back your money and they can put you in jail. So like, this is stupid. Yeah, I always go, God, I will not look good in orange. Like that is always my biggest fear. And that has been my biggest fear because this is the important thing is if you are somebody that is billing Medicare, you are literally basically a contractor with Medicare. You are are agreeing to a lot of things. It takes a lot to become a somebody that is a Medicare provider. There's a lot of pieces of paper. Alex went through those when he started his practice. I went through them when I started my practice. You were basically agreeing to a certain amount of rules in order to get paid for by Medicare. And it's a great payer, right? Medicare pays within 14 days. And if you get your CPT coding down in what is sort of formerly known as a super bill, like these are the common codes that I will use in my specialty, you can really create a very efficient business. But if you don't play by the rules, you can get yourself into a lot of hot water. Now, let's go back to just a second. Who are the people that can actually bill CPT codes? Well, lots of people who are, let's just talk about, I'm not going to talk about durable medical equipment and other people who are working in sort of a similar, but not exactly the same CPT code environment. It's generally physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners. They are the ones that live in the CPT world. So they're the ones that are out there saying, okay, I did this. It's, let's say, a level three code, because there's all these different types of codes, and it's all based on time and acuity and these types of things. So if you think about that, There's not that many people that can actually go out there and build CPT codes. There's limited other things. There's licensed social workers, some psychologists. But in general, this is a physician, nurse practitioner, PA world as as most of us are living in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got these CPT codes. We get a whole bunch of them. And sometimes you can add these things called modifiers. And modifiers allow you to be able to sometimes bill at the same time that you might not otherwise have been able to bill for that code. I'm going to give you a great example. If somebody is in hospice, as an example, and I hope the listeners can really appreciate this because this is something, a a rumor I choose to want to dispel probably on the daily. If somebody is on hospice or in hospice or whatever the preposition is that you want to use, if they are currently receiving Part A benefits that have been redirected into the hospice for hospice care, there is a there's misinformation that they cannot obtain medical care from anywhere else. Correct. That is simply untrue. It is simply untrue. Somebody who is on hospice has a terminal diagnosis, and in general, Medicare doesn't want you to continue to pursue curative treatment for that particular terminal illness. But if you go and let's just say you're on hospice, but you fall and and break your hip, 
you can actually, a physician can absolutely get paid for that. If you are on hospice, let's say for dementia, but you have diabetes, you could go see your doctor for diabetes. Medicare doesn't love that, but you know, it, it, it's a thing. And there are modifiers that physicians can put, nurse practitioners, a PA, sorry, can also put on that CPT code when they see a patient that's on hospice, which is either a GV modifier or a GW modifier. So it's like, it becomes, it's, it's an alphabet soup, right? And there are people who literally get degrees in this. There's people who specialize in this and there's people who like live and breathe in the CPT world. Yeah. So can you, so I, obviously I'm familiar with the emergency medicine CPT codes, you know, 991 sure. through 99285, but how does the hospice CPT codes work? Do they bill a CPT code every month? Or yeah, they-, they do. There's a ton of, there's a ton of codes that exist in hospice and without getting too far into it, Medicare has requirements and this is part A, remember, so hospice is part A, but they right. also have a lot of codes. They, you know, I'm going to, claim a little ignorance here, not knowing if they're like CPT codes directly, but they are specifically codes that say, I saw, I am a nurse and I saw this patient on this day. I am a social worker and I saw a patient on this day. And so there are a certain number of those that you need to have in order to bill and to code. So there's a whole other set, there's a whole other set of coding that is out there for the part A world as well in order to meet those compliance. But on the part B world, we are living in the world of CPT coding. Right. So let me let me jump from here because I think it's really clear. Like, you know, if you do something, you get paid for it. And I'm going to give you some examples. In the emergency room, Alex, when we would see somebody for chest pain, we would put a CPT code and then there is a value, the RVUs that are on that. The total number of RVUs is what determines payment. And we're going to get a little bit into how those get created because I think it's kind of confusing what an RVU is. A total RVU is actually a breakdown of three sub-RVUs. And most people who work in the medical world, if they're in an RVU-based reimbursement system for their own payment, they get paid based on what are known as work RVUs. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if we're in the emergency room and we see a patient, we evaluate them for chest pain, that might be five RVUs. And we get paid in 14 days after we see that patient, then we get paid. On the other hand, although they're not getting paid necessarily by Medicare because now all the insurers use CPT codes, this is across the board, every insurer uses CPT codes. If you deliver a baby, the 40 weeks prior to all of that, you're not getting paid along the way. You only get paid when the baby gets born. So there's lots of different ways that people get paid for these CPT codes. And that might be like 40 CPT codes, sorry, 40 RVUs that you get paid for at the end of the baby being born, even though you're you're sort of like ticking along. I did, I saw this person, well, you know, well, baby check, well, baby check, well, baby check. And then the baby gets born, and then you get a big giant payment based on 40 RVUs. So in the ER, we're doing a five RVU thing with a chest pain eval, but the OBs are maybe getting 40 RVUs pay, worth of payment at the end of a 40 week set of 40, 40 weeks of taking care of that patient. Does that right. make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the examples, yeah. Keep using so, examples, yeah. Like th- that's pretty much how it is. So let's let's just talk really quickly because we've now talked about the fact that these CPT codes were developed in the 60s. And then over time, the federal government wanted to say, wow, this is a really great idea. Look at all these codes. Look at all these ways that we've established how people do work. How do we just start? How do we start sort of attaching dollar payments to each one of those? So we, you know, we, when I say we, providers don't always understand that each 
CPT code has an RVU value. Right. And that that RVU value is actually broken up into three different types of RVUs. And RVU is sort of based on the this concept called RBRVS, which is the resource-based relative value scale. So like, what is it that is comprised of these RBUs? Do you know, Alex? Like, can you think to yourself, like, what would be important if you wanted to ascribe a dollar value or amount of work to a CPT code? Like, you how know, would you do that? I read about this a long time ago, but it was some something to do with the amount of work involved and maybe some component of like risk and resources or something. It It absolutely is. So let's kind of break it down. And we're going to talk about the first subcomponent of RVUs, which is the work RVU. The work RVU, it's an assessment of the labor that is required to do that particular CPT code, essentially. Right. So it accounts for technical skill, physical effort, mental effort, judgment, stress related to the patient outcome. But most importantly, it's about time. So the total work that is sort of, they give you a, like a little sub yeah. amount of RVUs for doing this. So it's about pre-service work, the amount of service that you do during the particular process, and then the post-service work. And so you get a little RVU amount and, and you have to lobby for this. The AMA has opportunities to go and say, I know that you thought that doing a certain type of procedure used to be, you know, seven hour long, but now it's only three hours long, or it used to be one hour long, but now it's six hours long. So there's a lot of infighting and year over year, the amount of RVUs that are attributed to different CPT codes is, is under constant, there's like negotiation every single year, year over year. Oh yeah. It's massive because the slightest change times millions of patients is gazillions of dollars. Right. right. Oh, and not only that, but since mo many physicians are actually reimbursed because there's so many employed physicians and they use work RBU models for physician compensation, this becomes really important. Like how you argue for the component of an RBU that is the work RBU literally could potentially affect how many dollars a physician brings home. Oh, yeah. And, and not only that, I think there's, if you want to see which specialties have the greatest influence in Congress or whoever decides this, all you have to do is see which specialties procedures have the highest RVU values. Which right, but they're the lobbyists. Be, yeah, yeah, they're the it lobbyists. It tends to be like the orthopods and a couple of the other specialists. But we would we would joke in the, the in the ER, you know, the ER handshake was, you know, you, you do a rectal exam and we're all trained <laughs> that, you know, there's a couple of things you you're supposed to do on every single patient. And we don't actually do that, right? But a rectal exam was always kind of part of that. And it turns out that, you know, rectal disimpaction is like one of the highest paying procedures you can do at one of the highest RVU procedures in emergency medicine. And it's kind of crazy that certain procedures for some reason ha have massive RVUs contributed to them more than the entire ER visit by itself sometimes. And th that often has to do with the, the risk of doing that procedure. Yeah. Medicare and and the AMA in their in their great wisdom in the development of the RBU based system does take into account this is maybe not going to be very time consuming may not require a lot of work but the downside and the risk might be very high and so it actually there's a different part of the RBU system that gives it a high a higher total RBU 
Yeah. But why is this all important? Because RVUs in and of itself doesn't get a doctor paid. It's how those RVUs translate into dollars. Yes. So there is a conversion factor and there's exactly. a, a lot of fighting about the conversion factor. Year after year after year. This is not a small thing. So I actually, you know, it's funny because it doesn't change like by massive amounts, but like even a two to 4% change. And I think in 2023, it's somewhere around $33. And yeah. I actually don't have the exact number in front of me. Every time that the RV, the total dollars amount changes in that conversion factor where you say, okay, if you did a five RVU procedure, this year you're making this, the next year you might be making 4.5% more, the next year you're making 2% less. So this has become a really big thing. And this is not just argued in some back offices. This is, comes through oh, yeah. our government. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to practical advice. So let's say you want to, people always ask like, oh, well, how much can you get paid for doing X? So how can people look that up? So, all right. So the nice thing is that Medicare has a lookup tool. So you can Google search under CMS and you would basically look for the physician fee schedule. And there is a physician fee schedule menu. And there's a lookup tool where you can actually put the CPT code in if there's any modifiers, if you're knowledgeable about modifiers, you can put those in and then you click and it will tell you how much you get paid for that CPT code or HICPICS code. And we can just understanding that those are basically synonymous with each other, how much you get paid in different regions. Remember that geography is important under the Medicare, under the Medicare rules. If you live in a place that is as a higher cost of living, generally the reimbursement for different CPT codes will also be higher. And there's other different types of codes that will allow you to get paid more if you're in a facility because they understand that doing certain codes in a home or in a doctor's office, in an outpatient surgery center, in a, in a hospital, all of those incur different types of fees. I think it's really important that people know that that is out there so any of you startup people who are looking to kind of like sort of wrap yourselves around original Medicare CPT codes and what those rates look like. And also, by the way, the MA plans utilize those same reimbursement rates in many ways for calculating the total cost of care of a patient. You can look these up online and you can sort of see like, wow, if I, the telemed code seemed to be of great interest to people, you can look up to see if somebody bills a certain telemed code whether it's an RPM, an RTM, any sort of these types of codes, how much could I create? And then what is the value of my product? What is, yeah. you know, how, how can I utilize this information to create a business around it? Okay, um, so a couple of quick points I want to point out. So yeah. yeah, if you go into Google and just write CMS CPT code lookup tool, the first link is the one you should generally follow. Yep. You'll have to accept a few things. You will see this, you will see that you need to decide which Mac you are kind of looking up, as Amy said, the, the, there's slight differences in payments based on region. Medicare is actually administered through these medic, these MACs, which are the Medicare administrative contractors, right? So the government doesn't really do anything. They're they private contract, companies that they're private. Yeah, they contract everything. So all of this is actually done at like in our mid-Atlantic region, the MAC is Novitas. So you, you can choose or seal the payment by MAC. And then Amy, talk, remind people that this, like in a part B payment, you're actually not getting that whole amount. Yep. Right? I think that's so you, critical. So, explain that. Absolutely. So 
let's just kind of like go back through this. You've got these CPT codes. You get RVUs that are related to them. There's a conversion factor. So you get a total amount that Medicare is willing to pay. It sort of slightly differs by geographic code. But the person who is performing that service has a different Medicare allowable rate, meaning a physician is the one that is the the only person that can, quote unquote, potentially collect 100% of the Medicare allowable rate. So if Medicare says, let's say Alex does something and then the code is 99999, okay? So that's the code. And you put into this lookup tool 99999 and it says $100. We know that Alex can potentially make $100 from this. However, Medicare is not going to pay that $100. They're going to pay, pay 80% of that $100. Right. And the other 20% is going to come out of the patient's pocket, comma, or through their secondary or co-insurance. Right. So all of the dollars that are here under the Part B system are just potentials. Like Alex could do 99999 and say, I'm going to send a bill to Medicare for $1,000 on my CMS 1500 form. I'm going to tell them I want $1,000 for this. Medicare is going to go, ha ha, no such thing. We have a CPT code with RVUs that map out to a Medicare allowable cost of $100. And here's your 80 bucks. Right. And so, good luck in getting your other 20. <laughs> so that total amount you see, it gets decremented if it's performed by an APP, right? Like an NP or a PA. An NP or PA. And the amount that it gets decremented is by 85%. So the total allowable, the Medicare total allowable cost goes down by 15%. Right. So if it's $100 for Alex, it's only $85 for his NP. And the NP would then potentially only collect 80% on that $85. Right. right. So it starts to go down pretty rapidly. And you have... So... And there's rules that you have to try to collect the patients. Correct. Uh, you you know, cannot just 20%. write it off. Right. Correct. You that, can't just be like, well, it's fine. You have to try to collect orange jumpsuits it. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to, and I don't remember exactly how many times you have to attempt, but at least once you have to try to get that secondary payment either through their secondary insurer. And I'll talk about that in just a second or from the patient themselves. It's important to understand that if you are a Medicare provider, and you have accepted the Medicare allowable rates, in general, patients have what is known as coordination of benefits, which means let's say that we send a, to Medicare because you only have to bill Medicare and Medicare supposedly goes through and says, oh, I wonder who their secondary insurer is. That's coordination of benefits. So even if their secondary is through Blue Cross Blue Shield and Alex doesn't take Blue Cross Blue Shield, he sends the bill to Medicare for you know the Medicare allowable rate he gets paid 80 bucks. Medicare then pushes that over to the secondary payer. And then the 20 bucks, the remainder of those 100 bucks goes to Alex through Blue Cross Blue Shield without him having to actually be specifically a Blue Cross Blue Shield provider. Right. So you can only be a provider for Medicare and still get paid by private insurers under the Medicare rules. Right. Awesome. That is such great information. But let's go back to ICD-10 codes just in the last few minutes here, because yeah. I think it's really important to understand how CPT codes are a distinct way that we map the activities, the professional activities that we perform. Those get mapped into RVUs. RVUs have a value ascribed to them. 
and then people get paid based on that RVU, which becomes, you know, that times the conversion factor is the Medicare allowable rate, which has some geographical malleability. And then from there, people get paid based on the 80-20 rule or the decremental 15% for being a non-physician provider, 80-20 rule. Right. So ICD-10 codes, let's just jump into those really quick because I think it's important that you can't have one without the other. You can't have CPT coding if you yeah. don't tell Medicare what is wrong with the patient. Yeah. So ICD-10 codes are, the and the 10 means they've obviously had previous nine versions of international classifications of disease. And just as there are many, many things that a physician can do and activities a physician can perform, there's only a limited number of ways that people could get sick. And every one of those ways of getting sick and having a pathology has been ascribed a code. And those are the ICD-10 codes. And by the way, there's manuals that are available for both of these CPT and ICD-10 codes. And by the way, just to make me feel old, I believe when I started, it was, was it an ICD-8 code or ICD-9? I don't remember when we were in med school. It was this ICD-9 coding, right? You, well, I'm a little bit younger than you. <laughs> so no comment. Okay. But yeah, so, just to Yeah, no just, comment. So go ahead. Like they update it and they add, okay, so ICD-10 codes is basically all the different ways that you can get sick. And so somebody, I always like to do this in my practice. And I I was talking to you about this, Alex. One of the things that I really enjoy doing is looking at lists of ICD-10 codes and then like trying to create a narrative from that ICD-10, like that list of ICD-10 codes. So if you see a bunch of codes and they're just codes, right? Like a whole bunch of codes. And I've memorized a lot of them because I work in the, I work in sort of clinical medicine quite a bit. It's like a narrative. I can say this is an elderly man who has a longstanding history of hypertension and chronic kidney disease who just had a recent fall and has a history of UTIs. Like you can almost turn these lists into narratives. And that's what Medicare likes to be able to do. They like not to turn into narratives, but they like to be able to say, what is everything that is wrong with this patient? And in hospice, as an example, we have extensive ICD-10 lists when people come on to hospice. When I was in just Part B practice, it was very important to say why the patient was being seen. What is the medical necessity of why you're seeing a particular patient? So the ICD-10 codes basically give credence to the visit so that you can build the CPT code and thus get paid. Yeah. So the CPT code is what you did. The ICD-10 code is, is why is you wrong. did Is why, why you did, did it, right? So like, I want to, I'm going to read off some of my favorite ICD-10 codes. Oh, here we go. Okay. Okay. W555.21 is bitten by cow. Yeah. W56.52XA <laughs> is struck by other fish initial encounter. So there's both initial encounters and subsequent encounters. So V97.33XD is sucked into jet engine subsequent encounter. So not just first. <laughs> this is somebody who's so klutzy, like, stop. Like, so stop w- getting away from the engine. <laughs> W61.62XD struck by duck subsequent encounter. Like, this is just ludicrous. I remember so, this. Yeah, these are, yeah, water skiing, but like being hit by the actual front of the water ski, not the back of the water ski, hit by boom. Yeah, yeah, all that. So, yeah, pretty much anything you could imagine. <laughs> Although people are coming up with stuff that, Still has not been captured but by ICD-10 codes. Okay, great. What, what else do folks need to know here? So basically, I think what 
people need to know is that we're going to actually take this particular podcast and we're going to expand on it because I think how people get paid and how money moves around has really been a driving force for us. I mean, in addition to lots of other things, how the money flows. And yeah. we all know that codes describe what we do. The CPT codes, the HICPIX codes describe what we do. The ICD-10 codes describe why we're doing it. And I think we're just going to kind of like keep exploring that. I think we're going to have somebody on who's going to talk about remote monitoring, different types of remote monitoring. I think the ENM, which is the evaluation management codes, are going to deserve a little bit of a deeper dive. And I think people who do procedures like surgeries are going to need to come on. So if there's any surgeons out there that want some time in the limelight and understand billing and coding and ICD-10 and CPT coding in your neck of the woods, please give us a call. We would love to interview you. I think it's just how the money moves. Now, we have been talking a lot about value-based care. And Alex, I'm going to kind of now start questioning you a little bit. How do CPT codes and ICD-10 codes work in a value-based environment, especially if you're not tracing the exact amount of things that you do back to a dollar amount that you receive? Because now in value-based care, like the calculus is different. Well, I, I would say it's not that different in that. It, so in the MA world, it's just like any other private insurance. They have contracts, the health plans have contracts with providers that they will pay certain amounts for certain CPT codes. And when those providers are their own employees, as some of them are, they will have their own model for that where the physician could be on a pure hourly and it doesn't matter which CPT codes they submit, they're still gonna, the provider is gonna get paid the same amount. Mm. And in those situations, mm -hmm. this, you know, the CPT codes not just function as a payment mechanism, but also as a data and reporting and analysis mechanism. Arguably, th that piece of it is potentially just as important, if not more important. All these risk-bearing entities need a source of truth for what's happening to whom and when, and all of that data it, through the claim, the claims data is the ultimate source of truth, right? So, so even in a model where you as a provider are being paid, not necessarily through the CPT codes, you are still submitting CPT codes because that is how you capture what happened to the patient and why. So, uh, anyways, yeah. Well, that's I, important because it just, yeah. I, I just think it validates why understanding this this part of the medical system is so critically important. It's just even in a value-based environment, if I am I am a company and I'm going to give you $500 to take care of this patient in a given month and you get to keep whatever is left over at the end, there is a huge data gathering component where you have to be able to say, well, how do I know what I'm going to get to keep? But you still have to be a coder. You still oh, have yeah. to learn to code even in a PMPM model, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then maybe we should talk about the fact that there are certain CPT codes that are not paid and they are purely for data gathering purposes. Correct. And people don't always know about them. And that's, yeah. and that's actually what's really interesting is that Medicare will sometimes, it's kind of like when you're taking the SATs, you're like, is that a fake question? Like, I can't tell if they're using it for next year's test. But yeah, they'll put out a code to see if people start utilizing it, but it's never really occurred to me to be like, hey, listen, I'm going to take the time to code for that, even if I'm not going to get paid because like, well, that already took like five seconds out of my life that I may never get back. But I do believe that there are a lot of codes for people who are in this world following it day after day. There are a lot of codes, like Alex said, 
that are kind of like test codes to see if people will utilize them. And if they get a certain amount of them, then they will try to work towards getting RVUs ascribed to them, getting them paid under the Medicare rules. And, and that that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So I think that's really another cool. And I think this, yeah, the same thing happens on ICD-10 too, by the way. There's a lot, always new codes, right? Like Medicare just came out with a whole list of these ICD-10 codes, which are basically Z codes for the social determinants of health. They're yep. beautiful codes, right? It addresses all of these different things, which is they're not like person is person has a heart attack, but it might be person has trouble getting food. And right. so there's a whole bunch of these types of codes. So on the value-based side, there's in addition to in like an internal operational data analysis and reporting value to the CPD codes, there's also a quality angle to it, mm. which is all these health plans are competing with each other for members, whether that's MA or, you know, or in the, in the private uh, commercial space. And they get, they, they have a grade, right? They have star ratings where mm. the Kaiser plans, five star, and this other one's three star. So which one are you going to choose? Well, we're probably going to go to the five star one, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how are those measured? Many of the quality measures that get aggregated together into the five star are measured automatically through the presence or absence of certain codes in the claims data for the, the existing members, right? So, so a lot of, in the value-based space, a lot of providers are under tremendous pressure to capture the right codes so that the health plan under, or the risk-bearing entity under which they operate can meet the quality, their quality goals. Not only that, but HCC scoring is related entirely almost to ICD-10 oh, yeah. quality, quality coding. Yeah. So, the, yeah. So it hits them on revenue side as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so you got risk, right. revenue, risk and revenue. It's the same. The only difference is in the Part B world, you do not have like risk per se, but there's always like, you can't bill this if you don't do that. And in, and if you don't have this ICD-10 code, you can't do this. And so it, it does, they all, the interplay of CPT and ICD-10 coding is, is pretty much paramount. And I'm not sure that everybody is always so skilled in it. I didn't learn it in med school. Did you yeah. learn it in med school? I mean, a little bit. No, a med school. No, 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 no. No, no. Not at all. Med school, just, no. No, just residency. Just okay, res let's wrap this up. So everybody, all right, great. Visit us at aginghere.com uh, and sign up for a newsletter. Send us ideas, stories, et cetera, info at aginghere.com. Reach out to us at info at masteringmedicare.net.net. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 